Matchbook presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about all sorts of stuff, so maybe grab a second butterbeer just in case. Welcome to episode four of First Years. For today's episode, you need to have read through chapter 12 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone. We have so many things to discuss, but I have a few things I want to go over first before we dive in. First things first, many of you may have seen J.K. Rowling's recent tweet in support of Maya Forstadter. Many of us in the Harry Potter community are hurt to see that the author of something we love so much say something that is so damaging to the trans community. We, as a podcast, want to state our agreement with the statements of Pottercast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, Potterless, and many others in the Harry Potter community, that this is a community that is welcoming, and it is a community for all, and we stand with our trans family members. Pottercast released an episode discussing this topic more in depth, and we urge anyone who wants more information to head over there to their podcast to listen. On another note, we are on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podchaser. So now we are on two different platforms that allow rating and reviewing. I didn't realize other platforms didn't have those features, so my bad. But you can rate and review on both Apple Podcasts and on Podchaser. We held an opportunity for house points on Instagram, and wow, the Hufflepuffs came out. They are officially in the lead as far as house points go. Slytherin is behind them, and then way off in the distance is Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. So thank you so much to Bunderlilies, Cat Cave Studio, who by the way is an incredible actual potter and you should definitely check out her store, Muggle in Khakis, Regal 716, Lady Sugar Quill, Anthony Rouse, The Introverted Witch, Unpensievable, Kev Ted, Shanice Laura, Knox.hpr, Haymat Faber, N. Ledez, and Carissa Marston, who have all earned gold stars as well as their respective houses' house points. If you'd like to be read out on here and earn house points, please rate and review and leave your name and Hogwarts house. It really helps us out and helps us grow our audience so we can build the Harry Potter community even more. Okay, so chapter nine, the midnight duel. It opens up on flying lessons. Harry is immediately very good, even though he's worried about making a fool of himself in front of Draco Malfoy. His broom comes right up into his hand as soon as he yells up, and poor Neville gets really hurt. When he gets nervous, kicks up off the ground too early, and his broom just sort of goes out of control because he doesn't know how to control it. And through this moment between Neville getting hurt, Draco stealing Neville's Remember-All, and challenging Harry to come get it, we see more about Harry's character. We see him stand up for Neville to get the Remember-All back, and Draco being unable to go up against Harry one-on-one. And it's this moment of seeing the Remember-All in slow motion, which feels like a magical moment similar to when Harry gets his wand, where it's something he belongs to, something he's already supposed to be a part of, where you sort of follow his gaze and see how 
the remember all sort of goes up into the air and then he sort of knows exactly how and when to catch it and sort of calculates that subconsciously before going after it. It's like this magical moment where it's like Harry realizes that being on a broom is amazing and it's already something he's good at. He doesn't need to study. He's just naturally good at it. It says, quote, he mounted the broom and kicked hard against the ground and up, up he soared. Air rushed through his hair and his robes whipped out behind him. And in a rush of fierce joy, he realized he found something he could do without being taught. This was easy. This was wonderful. He pulled his broomstick up a little to take it even higher and heard screams and gasps of girls back on the ground and an admiring whoop from Ron. He turned his broomstick sharply to face Malfoy in midair. Malfoy looked stunned. This is something he doesn't even have to think about. It comes completely naturally to him. Not just flying, I would say, but also standing up for someone. Harry doesn't even think about it. He jumps on his broom right away, ignores Hermione's warnings about what Madame Hooch said that anyone caught on their broom would be expelled, and he just goes straight to defend Neville and get the remember all back from Draco Malfoy. And yes, maybe this is part of Harry wanting to go against Malfoy because it's already someone he doesn't like, but I think it's more than that, where Harry acts as soon as he sees injustices without paying attention or really caring about what the rules are. And one of the best moments in this is McGonagall using this opportunity to help out the Gryffindor Quidditch team. And it's more of a human side of McGonagall rather than just her teacher side. Because honestly, if Harry was caught by anyone else, he would be in so much trouble. But McGonagall, being not just a teacher, but the head of Gryffindor House and also being a fan of Quidditch and wanting her house to do well, she immediately jumps on this idea that Harry just caught something that was almost invisible in midair in this crazy dive that Charlie Weasley couldn't have even done and uses it as an excuse to build the Quidditch team and use Harry's talents for what they actually are instead of getting him in trouble. And I want to point out that when Harry gets his new broom, the Nimbus 2000, it's made of mahogany. So now we have two more connections to Harry's dad. One, that James Potter did play Quidditch and he was good at it. And two, that Harry's broom is made of the same wood that James's wand was. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Harry's abilities on a broom also follow his father's abilities as well. And if we touch on the point of Harry standing up for injustice without thinking about the rules, it's something that sort of occurs to him afterward. When McGonagall catches him outside and Harry thinks he's in trouble, he's very upset. And it says, quote, now he'd done it. He hadn't even lasted two weeks. Is this regret for what he's done or regret for getting caught for breaking the rules for going against an injustice? And this whole idea of him going up against injustice or something that's not right continues with the midnight duel or what we think will be a midnight duel. And this whole thing, this whole event, points out the difference between Harry and Draco. Harry would 100% face up to the people he's against and fight, while Draco will go around the fighting face to face and will try to win in other ways which I think could be argued as part of his Slytherin side. But I also think that Draco is more talk than he is walk. So Draco really doesn't want to go against Harry. And I think if the roles were reversed and Harry was the bully and Malfoy wasn't, and he was the one who had to get on a broom to 
get the Remembrall from Harry, that Draco probably would have just let Harry stay on the broom and just wait and just would have waited for Harry to get caught instead of just hopping on his broom and also breaking the rules in order to get something back from him. But Harry can't do that. He doesn't hesitate to confront his adversaries, except when that adversary is a staff member who could immediately get Harry into a lot of trouble, as we find out when Draco doesn't show up. We find out that Draco tipped off Filch about the fight so that he could catch them in the trophy room. And then Harry will just run. (laughs) And honestly, that's probably the smart thing to do. And this is how we discover Fluffy, the three-headed dog that Harry believes is guarding whatever that package from Gringotts is that Hagrid took out of the vault when they were in Diagon Alley. And here we have a connection to Greek mythology with Cerberus who is the watchdog of Hades' underworld, and he's said to have three heads and a serpent's tail and heads of snakes growing from his back. Quote, he devoured anyone who tried to escape the kingdom of Hades and refused entrance to living humans. So already we have something from a different mythology or a different sort of symbol in this book again. And Cerberus, who like guards the gates of like hell, is guarding something. And Harry thinks it's the package from Gringotts. And Ron and Harry are discussing this, and they think it's either really valuable or really dangerous or both. And if it's something that's guarded by a dog that's similar to Cerberus, who's literally from hell, what side do we think it's actually on? And we're going to put a pin in this for just a second because there's so many things that happen in these chapters, and they all sort of connect, but not necessarily chronologically So we're going to come back to this point. So bear with me, but we're going to talk about, we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to talk about Hermione for a second. So Hermione. We get more of Hermione in these chapters and she makes the transition from annoying know-it-all to friend. And I think it's so easy to be annoyed by Hermione in the beginning of this book, especially with how Harry and Ron react to her. We've all known that person who wants to one-up everyone all the time and just wants to be the person who knows more than everyone else at every single given opportunity. And that person is tough to deal with. But if we think about why she might act this way, I at least have more sympathy and empathy for her. She's someone who didn't know anything about magic before she got her Hogwarts letter. And she finds herself about to be thrown into this completely new world. Now, Hermione, as we know, does not like to be unprepared for anything. Whether that's her being responsible or an anxiety she deals with, we don't know. But we do know that her wanting to always be prepared is why she starts reading as much as she can about the magical world before she enters it. And I think Hermione has a tough time making friends. Her knowledge is her way of making up for that, hoping to impress people so they'll be her friend, and she'll show that she's worthy enough of attention or worthy enough to be paid attention to. And I think she's trying to catch up to those who grew up in this world. But also, I think that's just who she is anyway, in either the muggle or the wizarding world. She shares information as a way to cope with her lack of other skills to connect with people. And I get this. It's hard for me to make friends too. I'm more of an introvert, so it takes time for me to open up and connect with people on a deep enough level for me to feel like I can actually be myself. When I studied abroad, it took like a full month for me to find my friend group. And that was like about 25% of my time studying abroad. And I would go explore the city or the zoo or the aquarium or something 
by myself because I was not about to stay alone in a homestay in a new city and a new country by myself and just wait to make friends. And I would, you know, when I was having conversations with my host mom about my day and I would tell her where I went, she would be like, you can invite people with you, you know? And I thought to myself, well, I would if I had people to invite because my roommate who really liked to go out and party and drink or whatever had an easier time making friends because that's what a lot of the people from the program were doing, but that just wasn't my scene. So it took about a month, but then I landed with five incredible ladies to be friends with, and we ended up traveling to other countries together, having lunch, dinner, celebrating my birthday, and it was great, and honestly, they were worth the wait. So perhaps Hermione is the same way, where maybe she doesn't know what to talk about to people who she doesn't really know on a personal level, or feels too insecure to share personal details, or maybe she just feels insecure about herself in general, and so relies on her knowledge to propel conversations. And she gets a reputation for obeying the rules, with telling Harry not to get on his broom, and for trying to stop Harry and Ron from going to meet Malfoy for the midnight duel. However, she says, quote, I almost told your brother, Percy. He's a prefect. He'd put a stop to this. So why doesn't she? She's concerned about them losing the points she earned in Transfiguration, but she tries to stop them herself instead of getting a teacher. And I wonder if this is either her thinking that they'll get in less trouble if she stops them herself than if she does get Percy, or if this is her way of trying to be a little more quote-unquote chill and not live up to the stereotype of getting a prefect or a teacher. And so she ends up getting stuck outside of the common room with them and says, quote, Do you think I'm going to stand out here and wait for Filch to catch me? If he finds all three of us, I'll tell him the truth, that I was trying to stop you and you can back me up, unquote. Which is, like, not the way to make friends, Hermione. <laughs> Especially with Harry and Ron. And I think this moment is really significant when it comes to her transition from this moment to after Harry and Ron save her from the troll. Which I just need to point out, chapter 10, Halloween, is one of those chapters that seems to really stick out in my memory in this book. It's one that when I do reread, it's sort of like, ah, oh, okay, we've arrived. Because it's a turning point, not only in establishing the golden trio of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, but it also propels the book forward into the overarching plot. So it's in this chapter where Hermione shows up Ron at Wingardium Leviosa, and then he goes on a rant about her, saying, quote, It's no wonder no one can stand her. She's a nightmare, honestly. Unquote. And Hermione brushes by him, and both Harry and Ron are alarmed at the fact that she heard them and the fact that they actually really did hurt her feelings. So Hermione's been in the bathroom, crying all day, and at the feast, when Quirrell comes in and shouts about the troll, and they're getting led back to their common rooms, they go after Hermione because she doesn't know that it's there. And this is a time where I feel like Harry and Ron should have gone to a teacher to explain that a student is missing because it's no one's fault that she's in the bathroom, no one would get in trouble. But instead, they go after her themselves and accidentally lock the troll in the bathroom with her. Good job, guys. And then they have to go in and save her. And when the teachers discover this, it's a huge moment where Hermione lies for them in order to get them out of trouble. Because this is a moment where if Harry and Ron had just gotten a teacher in the first place when they, were first, when they first noticed Hermione was missing, no one would have been in trouble. However, once they didn't do that and had to rush in to save her, I think she knows that telling the truth, like she wanted to do when they were out for the midnight duel, would get them both in trouble. 
And I think there's a part of her here where she wants to prove Ron wrong and show that she can play as part of the team as well. So she covers their asses and takes the heat so that they don't get into trouble. And it's this change in her, as well as their combined experience of the troll that forms the basis of their friendship. So let's talk about trolls now and what it might mean for this moment as far as the foundation of their friendship. So trolls come from Scandinavian Nordic folklore mythology, and in early Scandinavian folklore, they were, quote, giant monstrous beings, sometimes possessing magic powers, unquote. And they were hostile to people and would tend to terrorize the districts that sort of lived close to them. And if they were exposed to sunlight, they would turn to stone, which we see in Tolkien's work in The Hobbit. And in later Scandinavian tales, trolls were either average human-sized or smaller, similar to dwarves or elves, and they lived in the mountains and would sometimes steal, quote, human maidens and can transform themselves in prophecy, unquote. When we look through Norse culture, there's sort of two main traditions regarding the use of the word troll. So in the first tradition, the troll is similar to what we see in this chapter, sort of this large, brutish being, and it's ugly and has like sort of ugly features to it. This part of the tradition is the one that sort of dominates fairy tales and legends. The second tradition, which is more prominent in southern Scandinavia, they're smaller and more mysterious, and they're definitely more mischievous. They can make themselves invisible, and they could travel on the wind, and they could sneak into human homes, and, quote, where the large ogre-like trolls often appear as a solitary being, the small trolls were thought to be social beings who lived together, much like humans, except out in the forest, unquote. So these were trolls that resided underground, usually underneath large rocks and forests or in the mountains, and they hoarded gold and treasures. So sort of like the dwarves and the hobbit, I guess you could say. <laughs> I also found a source about she-trolls, like female trolls in Nordic um, Scandinavian mythology, and it talks about how they were, quote, sometimes content to coexist peacefully with humankind, minding their own business, and can on occasion be friendly and helpful, unquote. And they had exceptional strength and ferocity, which actually made them more fearsome and dangerous than their male counterparts. Someone called John Arnason divides Icelandic folklore into ten principal divisions. So he breaks them up into materials containing spiritual or mythical beings, ghost stories, magic and magicians, natural history, rudimentary Christian hagiography, strange events, outlaws, adventure stories of pure fantasy, humor stories, and superstitions and anecdotes arising out of them. And he grouped three subsections in his tales of spiritual or mythical beings. And in these were elves, water dwellers, and trolls. So his third subclass is trolls. And quote, for where the elves are majestic or ethereal, the trolls, though huge, are gross. Where the elves inspire awe by their dignity, trolls frighten by their coarseness. And he also talks about how they have a habit of abducting humans. He also talks about night trolls, which quote, could not bear daylight and were the beings hewn out of the young rocks, unquote. And I believe these were the ones that if they experienced daylight, they would turn to stone. In this research of trolls, it's sort of, you discover that trolls are much more complex than the one you see in this chapter, where they actually, like, have names and family trees and, like, 
personalities. And they're also able to think critically and plan their attacks on people in creative ways. Whether or not they executed them well is a whole, whole other story, but they're able to have that thought process of going against somebody and what their actual plan of action is going to be. For example, in one of the stories that I read, a troll was after this king that was against them, and he disguised himself as a woman in order to poison the king. And this troll does not succeed in their plan, but it just shows that they're able to sort of think outside of the box and plan something against someone and create a disguise and sort of sit at a party and know what poison is and get it and have a plan to slip it into his drink. While the troll in this chapter definitely just sort of shuffles around and breaks things. One more thing that came up while I was doing this research was that the word troll is used for many things in this folklore and this mythology. It sometimes is used to describe dead beings like ghosts or demons where, quote, the dead are often referred to as trolls or troll-like, unquote. There's also a word, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, draugr, D-R-A-U-G-R. And it was sometimes used interchangeably with the word troll, but it's also a word that is used as a synonym for words that indicate a demon. So we have here different types of traditions as far as trolls, some of them being really big and living in the mountains, some of them terrorizing humans, able to think uh, creatively and plan. Others that are smaller, live underground, hoard treasure, steal from humans, some that can make themselves invisible. So many different things. Uh, some, you know, as I said before, associated with words that also are used to describe demons. So you know what I'm going to ask here. What does it mean that their big obstacle to friendship is a troll? Or does it even matter that it is a troll? Does any of this folklore have anything to do with it? And honestly, it might not. I was having trouble making a connection between these trolls that seem to fit more into Tolkien's lore than Joe's, but what if we're just thinking too hard about it? What if it's a lot simpler than that? Because this troll is very different from the traditional trolls in Nordic mythology. It's similar in some ways, but it's not clever and it doesn't turn to stone in the sunlight, at least that we know of. It just seems to shuffle around and destroy things, like I said before. So what if it's just this big thing that they need to get over? This is Harry's first big obstacle as a wizard, and Ron's first well-executed Wingardium Leviosa. Maybe it's just the physical form of the blocks between them that they need to get over in order to connect with each other as a trio. And I think there's something to say about the line at the end of the chapter. Quote, there are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. Unquote. Your closest friends are the ones you share a history with, especially the difficulties you face in life. And with newer friends, it's different than with your older ones, because they already know you and what you've been through, and so you don't have to explain yourself. They just get it. And I think this is the beginning of their big friendship that lasts throughout the series. They overcome obstacles together, as best friends do, and this connects them on a deeper level. So in the following chapter, Quidditch, Harry gets ready for his first Quidditch match, and we get an accusation of Snape as being after whatever Fluffy is guarding, because his leg is hurt. So Harry thinks Snape let the troll in and then went after Fluffy, which, again, begs the question, what is the package? And Hermione disagrees, but Ron jumps in on Harry's theory. 
Harry preps for the Quidditch game, and it's all going according to plan until it isn't. Harry loses control of his broom. It tries to buck him off it. And Hagrid says, Can't nothing interfere with a broomstick except powerful dark magic. No kid could do that to a Nimbus 2000. Unquote. So we've learned something about broomsticks and their magic here. And who do we find? Snape. Eyes fixed on Harry, muttering nonstop under his breath. Hermione is on it. And as soon as she distracts Snape by setting him on fire with those awesome blue flames, which I want, by the way, because I'm always freezing, Harry regains control of his broom and catches the snitch, winning the game for Gryffindor. And this only fuels the Snape theory, which they let out in Hagrid's hut after the match, and we discover that Fluffy is Hagrid's, and someone named Nicholas Flamel is involved in whatever Fluffy is guarding. And so is Dumbledore. So going back to our question beforehand, if Dumbledore is involved, and it's something that needs protecting, is it valuable or dangerous? Or is it both? And is Snape after it? And if so, what for? Otherwise, why was he trying to get past Fluffy? So we transition into Christmas time, and I always love the description of Hogwarts at Christmas. It just sounds so beautiful and cozy, and I want to live there. And we get more connections to Harry's family in this chapter. Harry wakes up to the most amount of presents I'm sure he's ever had in his life, a wonderful 50 pence piece from his lovely relatives, a Weasley sweater, fudge, chocolate frogs, and an invisibility cloak. From who? We don't know. But we do know it's his father's. And it's something that he immediately connects with and cherishes. He follows the advice of the note that night to, quote, use it well, unquote. And I think it's a great moment where Harry can follow in his father's footsteps. What did James use it for? We don't know. But having one gives one the freedom of all sorts of adventures which Harry figures out when he realizes, quote, the whole of Hogwarts was open to him in this cloak. Excitement flooded through him as he stood there in the dark and silence. He could go anywhere in this, anywhere, and Filch would never know, unquote. Harry's adventurous side is coming out. And look, the boy flies a million miles in the air after a tiny gold ball in a sort of very dangerous sports game. Of course, he likes adventure. But this line is so powerful. You can just feel the excitement of having the complete freedom to discover all the secrets you want about a place. And so he sets off to the restricted section of the library to try to find out more about Nicholas Flamel. Harry, of course, meets a screaming book and then has to escape Filch and Snape. And he ends up in an unused classroom where there is a mirror. And the mirror on the top says, Erised stra eru oit ube kafru oit on wosi, which I really urge you all to read backwards because reasons. This mirror shows Harry his entire family. We've seen bits and pieces of them through little details of the wands and Quidditch, and now we get to see them all here. Harry gets a glimpse of his huge family that he's never been able to see before. Quote, he had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness, unquote, which makes us feel for Harry. Just like with the Wizarding World, he's found something that he's a part of that's bigger than himself. Harry has only ever known a small family that doesn't love him. And here is his first piece of evidence that he has a huge family that loves him and isn't with him just because of an unfortunate circumstance. 
and he is completely drawn to staying in this room, to the point where even Ron gets worried about him and tells him not to go. But I don't think we can blame Harry for getting caught up in it. This is the only time he can actually be with his family. And yes, it's unhealthy to sit staring at a mirror all day. But Harry is 11, and it's the only thing that's a visual connection to his family. And so Dumbledore steps in. And in Dumbledore's fashion, drops some wisdom on Harry. Using that iconic quote from the book, quote, It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. At the end of their discussion, Harry asks Dumbledore what he sees in the mirror, and Dumbledore says he sees himself holding a pair of woolen socks, that people never give him them during the holidays and insist on giving him books instead. And Harry reflects that Dumbledore might have lied about it, after all, it is a personal question, but in both circumstances, what does it mean? If Dumbledore is telling the truth, what does that say about him? That he's fulfilled and happy in this life and so doesn't feel the need to dream of anything more than having cozy socks. Or that he's achieved his desires and so deep desires change to little things that are just comforting. And if he's lying, what does he see? What does a powerful, famous, well-respected wizard like Dumbledore desire above all else? As always, let us know your thoughts about all of this. Do you connect with Hermione? Why didn't she tell Percy when she had the chance? Would you have gone after the troll by yourself, or would you have done it like I did and gotten a teacher to help out? Is Snape after the package, or is Hagrid right and Snape has nothing to do with it? Is Dumbledore lying about what he sees in the mirror? What would you see if you looked into it? Share your thoughts with us on Twitter or Instagram at firstyearspod, or email us at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review us if you have a spare moment. And from all of us here at First Years Podcast, have a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources for this episode can be found in our show notes and also on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R.